I called this course, What Are My Unique Values? Not necessarily what are my unique values, but what are our unique values? Creating a list of unique values, things that we can say, if someone offered me a million dollars, I would not negotiate on it. That's how important these values are to us. The funny thing is, is that Judaism, and I'm using that word very lightly because it's really about the Torah and Jewishness and Jewish tradition, has given the world a lot of values. What I'm fascinated about are not the values that Judaism gave the world that they accepted, but rather the values the world didn't accept. I'll give you an example. What is the origin of the seven-day work week? What's the origin? The book of Genesis. There's no other place. There's no other place anywhere that says the, work, the week should be seven days. Actually, Napoleon, in the beginning of the French Revolution, said, as part of kind of uprooting the silent revolution, getting rid of religion, forget about seven days, bad idea, let's do ten days. And he created a metric work week. It lasted 13 years. People couldn't handle it. It was a 10-day week with a weekend, the ninth and 10th day. People couldn't handle it. But the only source of the seven-day week is the book of Genesis. Atheists, agnostics, believers alike accept this gift that we have given the world. On six days a week you shall work, and on the seventh day you shall rest. I don't know what happened to our society. I think it's a little more than on the seventh day you should rest. Now it's the sixth and seventh and eighth day. I don't know. Maybe it's soon it's going to be like six days a week you should rest and one day you should work. <laughs> going back to Derek's issue with, uh, <laughs> with, with work ethics. <clears throat> but that is a, a core value. And it's a value that we gave to the world and the world accepted it. Monotheism. We're reading now in the Torah about Abraham. In the times of Abraham, 4,000 years ago, people could not imagine a God that you couldn't see, you couldn't hear, and you couldn't sell. It was unheard of. There were people that were calling themselves deities. People were worshipping the stars in the sky, the dust of their feet. This is what the world looked like. And comes along Abraham with a novel idea called monotheism. And today, majority of the Western world agrees with him. It's a gift that we gave the Western world. We, I'm saying, Abraham gave the Western world. And they accepted it. What I'm thinking of tonight is what... Do we, as Jews, have to offer the world, and ourselves for that matter, that is authentically Jewish? Nothing. How do most Jews see the preservation of our religion of Judaism? Is it the preservation of an ethnicity, a race? A culture? 
Who's going to buy into that? It can't be, I mean, I can go through, and I've talked about this so many times before, but I'll go through it quickly. I mean, it, it can't be a race because we're among so many different nations. It can't be a, a nationality. We're all over the place. We, we speak so many different <laughs> languages in so many different countries. Religion, Judaism predates religion. What is it? But more than what it is, what it is is if Judaism is going to survive, what I believe right now is going to be the greatest challenge it ever faced. The challenge of apathy and assimilation. If our people are going to be able to survive this, it has to be a better question than, you know why you have to marry Jewish? Why do you marry Jewish? Because otherwise the Jewish people are going to be gone. I mean, could you imagine if we started talking about IBM like this? If IBM, which is a legacy company in the United States of America, cannot innovate, cannot be relevant in 2019 going into 2020, it does not deserve to exist. If Judaism is not able to be relevant... In 2019, going into 2020, it has no use to exist. And anyone who makes the thing, oh, well, if you don't marry Jewish, then we're not going to have Jews anymore. I think we're enough with that guilt. It's not working anymore. So what I want to ask is do we stand for something? And I'm asking it because I'm a rabbi. And so, obviously, being a rabbi, it's going to go back into the Jewish frame of mind, the Jewish framework. Obviously, if I was uh, someone else standing here, perhaps I would have another theological debate outside of a Judaism. But I want to throw it back into our court. If we don't stand for a higher purpose, then I don't think there's any reason for us to continue to exist. If we have nothing to give the world then we have no right to demand sacrifices. We have no right, and I'm sorry to be so blunt about it, but we have no right to send 18 and 19 year old Israeli children to the front lines just to keep a people going that may or may not have a reason to exist. If we're important, then we have to make sure that we have non-negotiables that carry that importance with it. We have to be able to say it as our elevator pitch on the tip of our tongue. This is why I'm Jewish and this is important to me and is a non-negotiable and that's why that 18-year-old kid is on the front lines fighting for me. So you're not talking about universally accepted core values that are non-negotiable because kindness is not necessarily Neither is a work ethic. I am talking about universally accepted values that are non-negotiable. What makes a value more Jewish or less Jewish? And that is a great question. Question one, what makes a value more Jewish or less Jewish? We're going to discuss that. Great question. What I'm, what I'm getting at, and I'm sorry that I'm building up this very heated, very strong proposition. 
I feel so Canadian. I'm saying I'm sorry all the time. <laughs> I'm losing my Americanness now. Just apologizing for everything. <laughs> the point is that if Judaism can't enrich the lives of the world's inhabitants, then we have no right to ask a soldier and take a bullet. Today is Remembrance Day. They talk about the greatest generation. What did they sacrifice? What did they live and die for? Here we are. How many of them are left? They've left the world to us. And they've left it quite well to say, you know, everyone starts talking about this, that, and the other thing, but they've done a good job. They left us without poverty. I'm talking about our world. Somebody living in Montreal. If you are in poverty, it means that you have not taken advantage of government, community, etc., etc., etc. I mean, they've left us in such a great, great place. So much so that some of us don't even know what to do with our lives. Because they left us so well. But what did they live and die for? Communism had nothing to offer, so it died. Marxism had nothing to offer, and it died. What do we have to offer? What are we going to carry on to the next generation? What is going to be the legacy of this generation? How are they going to call us the greatest generation? In what way? And so I think the way we start that is by finding what are our unique values. What makes us different? How can we, both individually and communally, enrich the world? How can we make the world a better place in a uniquely Jewish way so that the average young Jew feels that the preservation of their identity is not self-serving? It's not racist, it's not elitist, it's universal. That by being a better Jew, you're being a better human being. Because you're being a better citizen. Because you're contributing more to health and to the equilibrium of our culture. You're contributing to our society. I'll tell you what I mean by that. Macrocosmically is one way, but microcosmically, Judaism is always focused on individual microcosmic issues. How do I learn not to gossip? How do I learn to be spiritually fulfilled? How do I get into an intimate relationship with God? How do I create a viable family structure? How do I avoid divorce? I believe that we have a lot that the world needs to listen to. We have mastered certain tenets of life that the modern world is failing at. We know how to create passionate marriages. We have a tradition of 3,000 years and a culture that is very marriage-oriented. We don't talk about men and women. We talk about husbands and wives. 
We don't talk about individuals. We talk about community. We know how to inspire children. The problem is, is that we have become so infiltrated and so one with the society that which we live in. We're so good at that. We are the greatest melting pot that ever existed. We go somewhere and we are like them. It's incredible. We've always done that. We did it in Europe. We did it in Egypt, in ancient Egypt, and we do it here in Canada as well. We are so good at mixing in. But what ends up happening is we forget what's uniquely ours. And so... What I want to talk about, and starting with one value tonight, is I want to go through six values. These are six values that I think the world needs to learn, starting with ourselves. They are uniquely Jewish values, and just like we have been able to share so many other uniquely Jewish values with the world, I think these are values that the world would become an incredibly better place as a result of learning. And tonight, I start off with value one. Value one is a question. Destiny or fate? The ancient Greeks believed in something called fate. You can follow me with some of this in your workbook. Fate tells you that your point of origin is a mightier force in your life than your destination. The Greeks believed that everything that would ever happen to you had been decided for you before you were born. Every instant was preordained by the gods. And that's why the Greeks excelled the tragedy. The essence of all the great Greek tragedies is that the hero or the heroine is doomed to a sorry end because he or she cannot overcome his or her fate. Achilles took an arrow in the tendon of his heel now called the Achilles heel. Odysseus was completely and compelled to spend years of wandering after the Trojan War. The gods needed entertainment. And so they pushed you around like a piece on a game board. You were a stock character in the melodrama. You had no hands in writing. And what was amazing is this became the most pervasive idea of the ancient world. The ancient world was ruled by fate. It's quite amazing how much of it survived in the modern world. You know, the most read column in the newspaper is the comics. Next to it is the horoscope. Some stargazer is telling you that because you're a Scorpio, your character traits are such and such, and you're compatible with such and such a person. So let's look at the way society and government ruled for centuries. England, for example. It's an incredible country. 
England gave the world parliamentary democracy. It gave the world modern science. But one thing it did not give the world was meritocracy. England was not good at meritocracy. It gave the world an aristocratic idea. Everybody wanted to be the aristocrat. And I think that's perhaps why the best humorists are English. Because they are the best at raw, sheer cynicism. Monty Python. Because if you have the aristocrat, you can make fun of it. If you live in a world of meritocracy, you can't make fun of anything. The English are so good at cynicism because in England, if you were born and you weren't part of an aristocratic family, you're never going to elevate your life. You were going to be the poor schlepper for the rest of your life. And there's nothing you can do about it. Your life was determined by birth, depending on the kind of family you were born into. That was it. All you could do is hate the guy who was better off than you and make fun of him. There's nothing else you could do. The reason why is because you could never be him. What about me and you? We look at that guy and say, I'm going to have that car one day. I could become that. If, if he can do it, I can do it. That's where we look. We live in a world of meritocracy. I can do anything. Who said? I could be an overnight millionaire. Other people have done it. I believe that fate is the most pervasive idea in history. Most of us cling to the idea of fate in one form or another, whether we express it or not, whether we want to believe it or not. Many of us believe that we were born with some sort of fate, and it's inescapable. How many times have we heard social anthropologists say that poverty breeds violent crime? Are we here to accept that? That poverty breeds violent crime? Is that what we take? The reason why we're so stubborn as a people, and it's a trait that we have, it's a trait of stubbornness, it's because we're supposed to look at the world differently. We're not supposed to accept. I live on Summerland. Two days ago, I was doing my regular, my regular turn off Summerled, taking my kids to school onto Hampton. There are five cones blocking. Not only are there five cones blocking, I know there's a lot of people who make that turn. And Summerled is packed, the traffic is crazy. I look down the street and I see there's no one there. There's no construction. There's no reason for the streets to be blocked off. I don't know, maybe last night they were doing something and they left the cones there. So I got into my car, I take the cones, I pick them up, and I very politely put them on the side over there. And I get back in my car and I go down the street and people follow me and 
When I get back, a half an hour later, the traffic is uh, eased up. I see this so often. We're like sheep. People just following. That is not our place in society. We are not supposed to follow. We are supposed to be stubborn for a reason. We're supposed to be stubborn because we're supposed to look at the world differently and affect it. Ever hear this term, a light onto the nations? It's not a theoretical idea. It's the idea of looking at the world in a way that's going to benefit the world in a better way. Sure, please. Decongesting traffic also for others and not just yourself. Um, I was blessed with the, there was a big, dark, terrible SUV going over Mount Royal, so driving on the grass um, last week, and uh, a few of us were trying to signal that obviously they weren't supposed to be there, and they continued to drive into a ditch, and the car flipped to its side, um, and all the people from the States had to get out, and their car was stuck. Everybody was unharmed, but it was very funny. Um, you helped people, they were just being uh, selfish. We'll be back after a quick break. Are you tired of swiping right on every dating app out there and still getting nowhere? Are you convinced that you'll forever be alone, surrounded by nothing but uh, cats and empty takeout containers? <laughs> Hi, I'm Aliza Ben Shalom, the host of the new show, Jewish Matchmaking, which you can find on Netflix. And I'm the love rabbi, Rabbi Yisrael Bernath, and we're inviting you to join us for Matchmaker Matchmaker. Each week, we'll answer one of your pressing relationship questions, from how to get over your ex to how to deal with your partner's annoying habits. So if you're ready to laugh, uh, cry, or maybe even find love, then tune in to Matchmaker Matchmaker, and it's available now wherever you listen to your podcasts. I think that it's a good example, I mean, on the flip side. But then again, I always love that what they say on the airplane that no one ever listens to is, please put on your mask before assisting others. So you should make sure that you have your mask on also. Maybe not only do it for yourself, but make sure that... Then I think of 9-11 and some of the people who risked their lives there and for others. So I don't know. We'll leave it at that. We're a very high-achieving people. We are. We are. And, and, and we, we buck the trend quite often. As a people? Yes, as a people. Yes. And I think part of my core value of work ethic comes from that. I mean, from the people that I've grown up with, and it ties into what you're saying. I mean, on a personal level, um, it's hard for me to accept the status quo, and I've reinvented myself three or four times in my life, and usually to a better place. So I think I think that's part of our DNA, if you will. But it's not our fate. It could chose, be part of our DNA. It could, but I chose my destiny and to change it. And that's the key. The key is that you chose it. Yes. You didn't accept. No. A guy. I was talking to somebody last week. He came to me because he was depressed. And he said the following statement to me that 
boggles my mind every time I think about it. I'm going to quote him directly because I wrote it down. Because it bog- I actually wrote it down in front of him. I said, I have to write this down because it boggles my mind so much. He said, my parents are divorced. My grandparents are divorced. And now I'm getting divorced. It's fate. It's a family tradition. Those were his exact words to me. And it hadn't occurred to him for a moment that he could break the family tradition? Is that it? Is that the best that we could do? It's fate. There's nothing I can do about it. It's true. If he looks at the research, the research is going to back up. People that come from divorced homes usually get divorced. But the key here is usually. The difference between the people who come from divorced homes that get divorced and the ones who don't get divorced are the people who make those changes in their life. The people who use choice, reinvent themselves, reinvent their destiny. And there it is, not accepting the fate and going for what I believe is a core Jewish value, destiny. Many Christians believe in fate. And that's why, as a Christian, you can lead a charitable life, be faithful in marriage, provide thousands of people with secure jobs, but you're going to burn in hell unless you accept what's his face of salvation. Who is Jewish? <laughs> with Jewish ideas. Just saying. The, the, the idea is simple. You can never rescue yourself. You are who you are, and there's nothing you can do to elevate your situation. That is the Christian tendency. So Britain believes this. So Christianity believes this. And then along, along comes this North American and believes something radically different. This idea of meritocracy. North America, Canada, the U.S., These modern nations were built on meritocracy. The land of gold and silver. You can be anything you want to be. That's what they told the people to get them to come here. That was the dream. It's fascinating because I lived in Australia for a little while. And Australia was, was, was built by convicts. And I remember one, there was a bunch of guys doing a barbecue. They all did the barbie. The barbie, you know, they did the beer and the, the lamb chops. You do the Barbie, and this other guy screams out, like, you know, shut up, my granddaddy built this place. And the other guy screams back, your granddaddy was a convict. You know, so. <laughs> Montreal, Snowden District, Chamonix, yeah. all the suburbs. Who built them? And who became incredibly wealthy? Holocaust survivors. So you and can here, change your, your faith. And here is exactly where I was going. What happened, if you look here in Montreal, the greatest, the greatest example are the Holocaust survivors who came here and really, I mean, by and large, became very wealthy. From nothing. nothing. From nothing. I've had the great fortune of spending time with survivors, listening to their stories. I mean, when I came to Montreal, I was selling flowers. And I always thought he was selling flowers, but no, he was selling flour. I was selling the flowers. And, that's, and, they, and these people built fortunes because they believed 
in this incredible idea of meritocracy, that you can come from nothing, you could lose everything. I mean, come on, these people should have been in therapy their whole lives. They should have said, me victim, me victim. They should have stayed in the, the refugee camps because Nebuch, they lost everything. Their families were wiped out in Auschwitz and they came. Nebuch, look at me, I'm a victim. I have nothing to do. I mean, you know, you should feel bad. They should have been on welfare for their entire life. Not only did they come here fearing nothing, they came here with the attitude they could do anything, and they did anything. And they taught us something very valuable. They taught us that we can do anything. So what's fate? In summary, fate is when you live focused on your origin. I started here, and I can never escape my origin. If I started as a worker, I'm going to be a worker, and I am fated to be a worker. But what's destiny? Destiny looks very different. Destiny is all about your destination. Imagine this. Imagine not thinking about your origin, but thinking about your destination. Judaism gave the world this incredible idea. You can put a goal in front of you. You can believe in a dream. And you can translate that dream into reality. Regardless of your point of origin, regardless if your family burned in Auschwitz, you can place a destination ahead of you, a vision of whom and where you want to be and by Reaching that destination, you are able to transform your fate into destiny. We proclaimed that what people make of their lives depends entirely on their actions. Fate looks backwards. Destiny looks forward. Fate looks backwards. Destiny looks forward. Notwithstanding modern behavioral sciences or genetic predisposition, the soul within us gives us infinite choice. We can always rise above circumstances. In every situation, in every predicament, we can choose. Judaism completely rejects the belief that we are doomed to a predetermined fate. We reject the idea that our past will determine our future. Instead, we offer the world the most thrilling concept ever conceived, that no human life is scripted, and that each and every one of us possess the freedom of choice. And it's been clear from the beginning. How did we start? We started out as slaves. Come on, you read the Haggadah. You know this one. Oh no, you're all getting tired now. You're thinking about the horseradish. <laughs> slaves, slaves, we were started as slaves. Slaves are born to work. Slaves have no dreams. Slaves have the worst possible fate. Abraham. Abraham was a nobleman, very wealthy. When God informed him that his children would be slaves, for 400 years. God wanted Jews to begin at the bottom rung of the social ladder. 
Slaves are born to work. Slaves are born to sweat. They keep their eyes on the ground. They concentrate on the task immediately at hand. And they're not allowed to have dreams. Imagine Abraham's reaction to this news. I don't think he was thrilled. He was an aristocrat. And he's found out that his grandkids were going to become slaves. But God had a plan for us. We started as slaves because the Jewish nation was going to teach the world that you could be a slave and freed in a single generation. And isn't that the Canadian dream? Fate is where you start and conclude your life, focused on your beginnings. If you want to sum up the story of the Exodus in one sentence, it's fate is a lie and destiny is the truth. You are not an animal. You're not subject to instincts, to reflexes, to forces beyond your control. Whatever you set before you, you can achieve. Your life is unscripted. I think the greatest example of this is one of my favorite stories. If I remember correctly, and for those of you who know it, you can correct me if I'm wrong, I believe it was April 4th, 1968. He was sick in bed. He had the flu. Thousands of people had gathered in Memphis, Tennessee, waiting for him to speak. He sent his right-hand man, Charles Abernathy, to speak on his behalf, but they booed him. Charles gets on the phone and he says, Martin, they want you. With every bit of energy he had, he mustered up the courage and schlepped himself out of bed and made his way over to the Mason Building in Memphis, Tennessee. He was only going to do a meet and greet. He was going to speak for a few minutes just to say hello to the people. The people wanted to hear him. And then he got up, the greatest orator of the 20th century, gave the greatest speech of the 20th century. I had a dream. No one knew that less than 24 hours later, he would be dead. And that would become his last speech. And that speech would land in the perils of history. But what did he do? He didn't just say anything. He spoke about a dream. Slaves are not supposed to have dreams. 
He quoted our book. I see the mountaintop. I may not get there, but you will see the promised land. That's Moses' work. He quoted our guy. Like, get your own guy. What are you stealing our guy? What is some African-American preacher in 1968 quoting some Jewish guy from 3,000 years ago? Go find your own African-American person. I'm not saying it in a negative way. I'm saying it in a very positive way. Because we taught every single enslaved people in all history that you can be enslaved and free in a single generation. That's what we taught them. That's what we taught him. That's what he taught his people. And in a single generation, there was a black president. He was right. His entire dream came true. Almost. A little bit more to do. But much better than it was in 1968, that's for sure. It's something that we gave the world. And we should be so proud of it. This is the way that God wanted it to be for us. God wanted us to be able to start a slave so we can say to every slave, dream. You are not going to be fated to your slave world. You have a destiny. Think about it. It's so foreign for us because we can't even imagine what slave is. Or maybe we can. We have addicts in our world. They're slaves. We have smartphones. We're all slaves. slaves. Slave is the worst thing to be. Where you can't control yourself. Where you can't do anything about it. Where you have no control over your future. Well, imagine if it was like that for your whole life. Imagine if your entire life, someone was telling you what to do. You know the biggest problem with slave mentality? Is it's very hard to change it. I think the United States, and for that matter, all of the Western world was, was just in their thinking that they could go into uh, Iraq, Afghanistan. I'm not going into politics here. I'm just saying it as, a, as, as, just, as, as an idea and, and create a democracy there. But slave mentality, when you are ruled by dictators, it's not an easy thing to do. You can't just go into a society and expect they're going to become democratic and they're waiting for your democracy. Slave mentality is so strong. And I would love for us to kind of acknowledge the slave mentality within us because we all have somewhat of a slave mentality. Somehow, we just want to be told what to do. Just tell me what to do. Tell me what you want me to do. I can't think. But it, yes, but it's more than that. Because a corollary of that would be that that mentality breeds fear of change and fear of risk. Uh, and it's the fear that could demotivate a person as well. It's, it's, it's because hard. Because of the slave mentality. 
it's hard to be the beginning. But you know what I love? I love that they call Israel the startup nation. It's hard to be a startup. You know what it's like having a startup? It's tough. You pay yourself $2 an hour for the first 10 years of your startup. Nobody could ever pay you enough for what you're doing. But yet, our country, the only Jewish country in the world, is called the startup nation. I think there's something to be proud of for that. So, yes, you're right. But at the same time, we, without even realizing it, continue over and over again to to show this to the world. They could call our country anything else. But they chose the word startup. And, And it really identifies so well with it. Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik said it like this, and I quote it in here. The patriarchic covenant introduced a new concept into history. While universal non-Jewish history is governed by casualty, by what preceded covenantal Jewish history is shaped by destiny, by a goal set in the future. Most historians work from the assumption that what has happened determines what will happen. History repeats itself. But Jewish history is pulled as if by magnet towards a glorious destiny. We never say history repeats itself. We say never again. That's what we say. You'll never hear a Jew say, oh, history repeats itself. No, it doesn't. We're not going to let it repeat itself. I'm not going to go into the whole Don Cherry thing, but I think that it's amazing how where our society has gone to the point where you can't even say an iota of something against someone else. Yes, that is a very important value. Finally, we're holding people of power to the place that they're supposed to be held. If you have a voice box, you have to know that you have a responsibility to take care and carefully guard that voice box. Yes, absolutely. You can't just say whatever you want and think you're going to get away with it. I'm not saying it's right or wrong, it's too much, too little. That's not the point of it. I'm just saying it as a general principle. That if you're a person who has the ability to affect people and is an icon, a Canadian icon, that you have to know that what you say matters. And you can't just say it because you were just off the cuff thinking about some commentary you wanted to say while in between the ice. You have to take responsibility for your words, and once you say it, you can't take it back. Questions? Comments? Yeah. But it's like that, that could a social kind of slavery. Like, like in Tom Sherry, maybe, maybe that was important. So I don't get the story, but it's, it's very controversial. But for like silencing each what each and every one, so we're kind of making a problem slavery. Yeah, I, I the, your question about social slavery is again, it's are you going to take your life into your own hands? Are you gonna see that your actions matter? Are you gonna see that you have Greta Thunberg, who is one person who can make a difference in one way, 
And you also are one person who can make a difference in your own way. That yes, you are not just a dim puff in the blaze of the Milky Way, as Mark Twain once said. You are a person that can make a difference and you can change your part of this world and your soul came into this world for a unique reason and a special purpose. That no other soul before you, no other soul after you, and no other soul during your lifetime came for this exact purpose. So you're here to fulfill that purpose and not to just be a sheep to slaughter. Anything else? Can I go on? Let's talk about free choice. I took this quote out of Man's Search for Meaning. I just started reading it again for the fifth or sixth time. I love this book. If you've never read the book, I urge you to please read this book. Viktor Frankl. This is one of my favorite quotes from the book. We who lived in concentration camps, he says, can remember the men who walked through the hut comforting others, giving away their last piece of bread. They may have been few in number, but they offer sufficient proof that everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of the human freedoms, to choose one's attitude at any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. I think that Frankel's unforgettable point is that even in the depths of the hell of Auschwitz, he still possessed the capacity to choose. Literally choosing to eat or to give away your bread. That is a choice for that day. The Nazis robbed him of his physical freedom by incarcerating him in a camp. They robbed him of joy by murdering his closest relatives. They had robbed him of his uniqueness by reducing him to a number tattooed on his arm. But one freedom. They could never take away the freedom to choose how he would react to the humiliations, to the horrors that were being visited upon him. Everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of the human freedoms to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. That a Jewish prisoner in a Nazi death camp can still claim to be free is the ultimate testament to the ability to write our own scripts. No one can force another person to forfeit his or her own destiny. You might wonder, we're not in Auschwitz, thank God. How is this concept relevant today? Sitting in a comfortable chair at second cup? Sipping a latte? What does that have to do with your day-to-day life? You're not shackled in chains. Murderous tyrants aren't imprisoning you. Whether you think you can or you can't, 
you're probably right. That Love is, the Derekism. That's life. But that's life. And, and what Frankl is talking about is life. There's no good or bad. Only reactions are good or bad. And it can alter your whole life. It's so powerful. The truth is that exercising our freedom to choose and understanding the full implications of this freedom, it remains a profound challenge for many people. Choice, of course, is often misunderstood. The Talmud maintains that 40 days before a child is born, an angel named Aziel announces whether it will be male or female, rich or poor, to whom he or she will be married, and how long this child will live. Isn't this a contradiction? In fact, this is the Talmud's way of saying that the choice is left to us humans, is limited. No one consults us on whether we wish to be born. No one consults us on whom we are born to. No one consults us on so many basic tendons of our life. No one even consults us on how our parents are going to raise us and what kind of love they're going to give to us. But we do still have a tremendous amount of power over our destiny. Destiny inspires. If I'm going somewhere, then knowing that I have a destiny gives me strength to deal and overcome my challenges. Jewish values insist that we always have a choice. And the most important thing at all is whether to be good or bad. Everything else pales in comparison. It doesn't make a difference if you're a street cleaner or the prime minister of Canada. If you're a prime minister and you accept a bribe, would you be better off as an honest sanitation worker? Whom you marry is a major life choice, but how you decide to treat your spouse is a much bigger determinant of whether the two of you are going to be happy together. Your moral choices determine your character. Your sign on the zodiac is irrelevant. It's your moral choices. No one can make you do something that you don't want to do. If you want to do good, the choice is in your power. Likewise, if you want to lead a, a selfish life, no one can stop you from doing that. But really, do you want to be a big selfie? By freedom of choice, Judaism means the capacity to exercise moral choice. That's what we're talking about. That's what freedom of choice is. Jewish values say that whereas people don't necessarily have the choice to do everything they wish, we can't choose to be tall as a giraffe or to become a pumpkin. We do have the choice of how to be, to complain or to be content, to hoard or to be generous and hospitable, to be good or evil. There are no excuses what you become is entirely in your hands. Let's bring this concept, let's say, into dating and marriage for a second. 
A lot of people get the notion of basheret wrong. I used to say, I don't believe in basheret, but I changed that. I don't believe in the way people use the word basheret. Because basheret, the way it's used, would mean fate. What is the basheret of destiny? People think that the soulmate means that your life is scripted. That I'm destined to marry such and such a person, and I'm going to feel for this and this person, I'm going to be swept off my feet the moment that I meet them. And so they wait for the fireworks. I always say, I just want to like, when I set up a date, I just want to put like little fireworks behind the person's tuchas so that they go off and the person's there. There's the fireworks. Come on. Good enough is never good enough. Because I'm perfect and my soulmate needs to be perfect. And if my soulmate is any less perfect than my perfection, forget about it. My soulmate is, of course, going to be the $12 million hedge fund manager, or she's going to be the most attractive supermodel of my dreams. Oh, the ordinary person I met, that's my soulmate? Really? I'm not ordinary. I'm special. It's why I get so depressed at some of these singles events. I, I, I can't do it anymore. Like, hi, my name is Steven, what's your name? Uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah, yeah, uh-huh, I know that, uh-huh. Just sitting around, standing around, like, they're not looking at you, they're looking at everybody else, because you're too ordinary. There's gotta be somebody better out there for me. I set somebody up today. And he, he sends me a message back and he says, um, no one under this particular age, which would be this age is 13 years younger than him. I'm like, my response, that was the last time I set you up. That's it. It's our choice. The soulmate becomes the reason that many Jewish singles aren't married. They use this idea against its original intention to justify not going out with someone because they believe that the soulmate is about fate. It's about a point of origin. It was written in the stars that we were going to marry and it's just going to happen. And this person is going to fall from heaven. Now here's another idea. What if soulmate is not based on fate, but rather soulmate is based on destiny? That your Basharat is not someone who you share a common origin with, but rather it's someone who's going the same direction as you. It's someone you share a common destination with. A goal. Which means it doesn't matter as much of from where you come, it doesn't matter as much what your origin is. It matters much more where you're going, what your destiny is. Studies show that most people look for commonalities when they date, especially of common origin or similar levels of, let's say, Jewish observance, similar financial backgrounds, similar levels of education. 90% of people who have gone to an Ivy League college in the United States will only date someone who have, who's gone to an Ivy League college. Because according to them, 
compatibility is all in a point of origin. Now, what if they're completely wrong? What if that kind of commonality was actually completely boring? What if you're just dating your double that just happens to inhabit a body of the opposite sex? What if you're dating your sister? Emotionally. The person you're looking for is exactly like you. And that's why today relationships have become so boring. What if commonality meant that you were heading to a common place? That real commonality is shared goals in addition to a shared origin. And not only a common background, but also a common vision. What about common non-negotiables? That's inspiring. Fate would dictate that a soulmate is only a common background. Destiny would dictate that a soulmate is someone who brings you to the places that you want to go. That would mean not someone who's like you, but someone who compliments you. You're looking for the compliment of your soul. You're not looking the whole opposites attract thing. Compliments attract. Similarities attract. Compliments are what we're looking for. Not just actual compliments, those are good too, but being complimentary. So Judaism gave the world this idea of destiny. Simply put, you were born unscripted, and that is the most empowering and most terrifying proposition in the history of the world. There's a certain comfort that we take knowing that we can't completely control our destiny, that our life is all faded, that whether or not we went to McGill or Concordia, it was all decided before we were born. It didn't matter what anybody said or what the admissions said. Whether or not we signed the record deal was decided before we ever thought of the record. It had nothing to do with hard work. You had nothing to do with anything you've done in your life. And of course, whether or not you fall in love has nothing to do with your behavior. It was decided long ago that here you were going to fall in love. Boom. Come on. You can't actually believe that. Yet so many people are governing their life. And I still can't get over it. And I've said this so many times, but I'll say it again. This girl that calls me up one morning and says to me, Rabbi, I have a very, very pressing issue. She called me six times. So fine, what's your pressing issue? Very important. My psychic told me that I can't go out today. What do I do? Like, don't go out. Psychic said, I'm not pressing with the psychic. If you believe that, it's going to be true. If you attribute all of your power to the point where someone can tell you whether or not to go out, I want to finish off with one last idea. Do I have time for two last ideas? Tell me. Do I have uh, 
Let's see, just gonna look at for what time it is. Do I have a half an hour? 15 minutes? Let's see where we go. Okay. <laughs> Cut me off at any time. You say, okay, Rabbi, that was nice. <laughs> have a good night. I want to go into, so now we, we've come to this idea of fate versus destiny. You're pretty clear with it, right? Fate, destiny. Prescripted, unscripted, um, common origin, common destination. Anything else? Fate, destiny. Differences. Huh? Lie, truth. Lie, truth. Choice. choice, no choice. Reactive, proactive? Yes. Work ethic, no work ethic. <laughs> Do we want to really be free? That's my next question. See it in your book? There's a debate going on in North America today whether people really want to be free. The debate is, when you go into a country like Iraq that forcibly liberates it, is it a good thing? Is it virtuous or is it just North American imperialism? Europe says, or Europe sees it as a North American imperialism. During the war in Iraq, before it went downhill, so to speak, we... Majority of Canadians saw it as a good thing. There were people who wanted to be free. Now, here's a fascinating question. Do 300 million Arabs want to be free or not? So all the people who supported the war said, of course they want to be free. So who didn't support the war said, of course they don't want to be free. We should have left them with a strong dictator like Saddam. People in the free world seem strongly to believe that all people want is to be free and that we're going to pay the price to spread freedom as did the war in Iraq and Afghanistan. So who's right? One of Sigmund Freud's greatest disciples was Eric Fromm. He wrote a book called Escape from Freedom on Christian philosophy. He says that most people don't want to be free. The responsibility of being free is terrifying. They'll do everything possible to escape from freedom. They do everything to have choices made for them. They will submit to governments just so the governments can make choices for them. Think about it. You walk into a supermarket and there's 40 brands of coffee. Which ones do you take? People don't like choice. Plain and simple. Actually, Studies have shown that less is usually more. Freud says that's why Christianity is such a powerful and popular religion. And Judaism never took off. Because Judaism says that people have destiny. That you're always free. And you will always therefore be held accountable for what you choose. In Christianity, the choice is taken away from you. Believe in what's his face. And everything comes after that. It's much more comforting. It's much easier. I wouldn't mind going to the confessional once a week. Yeah, but Christianity was based at some point anyways from, from a point of fear. Or control over... Yes, and, and many, many religions and many societies were created as fear and control. Absolutely. And Judaism 
fascinatingly enough, was never about fear and control. We're not interested in fear. Guilt. We like the guilt. Oh, we do the guilt well. No one does guilt like we do guilt. I can tell you guilt. It's not Hanukkah guilt. It's Hanukkah guilt. And every year they gave it to us. Over and over and over. Yeah, oh, oh, you see? You see? He called his mom today. He's good. The guilt. But never the fear. Never the power, never the control. Though the greatest uh, powerful and controlling people have been Jews. But we won't, we won't get into that. It's based on their guilt. Uh-huh. No, it's probably based on their guilt or based on their mommy issues. <laughs> I think, we're, uh, I think we've had enough tonight. It sounds like it. We're good. The wheels are starting to come off. I want to just conclude like this tonight. And there's a lot more that you can read that I wrote. And that was the purpose of me writing a lot of this down for you. Is you can go over it. You don't have to write so many notes. You can go over a lot of what I spoke about tonight. And things that I didn't have a chance to speak about. But here's my conclusion for this evening, and then I'll take your questions and reflections. The story of Moses leading the Jewish people out of Egypt, the story that Martin Luther King Jr. quotes in his famous speech the night before he died in 1968, I may not get there, but you as a people will get to the promised land with or without me. Nobody believed then that 45 years later, his country would have a black president. He didn't, or possibly did believe in fate. But I'm going to say he probably didn't believe in fate. Because why would a slave get up and say, I have a dream, if he believed in fate? He believed in destiny. He believed that you can set a goal for yourself and you can achieve it. There's no excuse for what you did not become in your life. And that's the greatest thing, and that is what the survivors taught us. And that is what the Jewish people have been teaching us throughout all the persecutions, is there's no excuse for what you didn't do in your life. During the the Six-Day War, the Lubavitcher Rebbe wrote a very powerful letter to General Arik Sharon. The Rebbe wrote the following, and I'm going to quote him. He said, You became famous and celebrated as a commander and defender of our holy land and its inhabitants. And as a person of powerful abilities, God, blessed be he, shone his countenance upon you and granted you success in your activities. Indeed of victory, of unexpected proportion. In other words, through our wrestling, through our actions, we overcame the impossible. Who could have predicted that three years after the Holocaust, the Jewish people would create their homeland and found the state of Israel? It's incredible. Three years, you're talking about people who were in line in the gas chambers then having to fight again for the war of independence. 
Out of every three Jews alive, one was killed in the Holocaust. We lost more Jews than ever in history. The, the historical precedents for a people so afflicted were not encouraging. The Romans were chased off by the barbarians who never heard from again. But the Jews, without armies, without guns, without soldiers, a mere three years after unspeakable atrocities were leveled at them, built their own country, and not just built it, built it well. What's the difference? The difference is the Romans believed in fate. They would go to the oracles and ask to be told what's going to happen. But the Jews believed in destiny. 18 times a day, we would pray for the return of Israel. 18 times a day for 2,000 years, we prayed to return to Israel. It never left our lips, not for one day. The value is so strong. The value is so potent that even the crematoria of Auschwitz could not extinguish it. Fire cannot extinguish destiny. And so there's a time in each of our lives when we open our eyes and we discover that rather than controlling our environment, we are allowing ourselves to be shaped by external events I've long noticed that the principal emotion that governs people in their advanced years is rejection. The Talmud says that most people realize only a fraction of their abilities during their lifetime. And so it's depressing to reach a certain age, possibly midlife, and look in the mirror and discover that we've arrived at an unwanted destination. People often see themselves repeating the very patterns that disillusioned them about their own parents. I remember promising myself countless times I would not do that, and here I am doing it. People would say to me so often, I'm never going to do that in my marriage. And then they come to me counseling, and I hear them doing it. Now, every time... I find myself becoming upset over a trifle or unable for a short time to overcome my annoyance. I acknowledged at that time how imprisoned I am. And it's that confrontation with my incarceration that inspires me to struggle, that inspires me to break free and approach those I love and apologize for my behaviors time and again. Because I, and I hope you as well, have no desire to live my life as a prisoner. Fate will imprison us. Destiny will set us free. L'chaim. So what do you think? Questions? I love I love some reflections. What are your what are you thinking about now after this uh, this class? How some of the choices that we thought gave us freedom actually imprison us with our with how we are, with who we think we are. Some of the choices that we thought gave us freedom imprison us. Mm-hmm. 
with how we are and who we think we are. Mm -hmm. Wow. Any other thoughts? My fourth value was responsibility. And it really meant taking responsibility for your decisions, for your reactions. Um, and to me, freedom in the way that we're discussing it today very much has a lot to do with your responsibility to yourself and to others. Um, and again, Bridget has certainly said this a few times. When someone says, it makes me mad, or it was so bad, the only place where it exists is between your ears. And ultimately, you have to be responsible for your freedom, for your reactions, for everything. There is no it. One of, one of the greatest things that my wife ever taught me, there's, two, there's many, many great things she taught me, but early in our marriage, she taught me two very powerful things. One thing she taught me is never cry over things. Life is too important to cry over things. Don't cry over things. If you lost something or something broke, don't cry over things. It can always be replaced. Life can never be replaced. And the second thing that she taught me is that Lost my train of thought. Okay. Call it. Yeah. <laughs> You're free to do it. I am free to, I am free to do it. <laughs> or not to. Or not to. He'll um, come back to you. Oh, thank you. The second thing she taught me is don't ever blame anyone for anything. And I think that it's taken me a long time and a lot of struggle because. I wasn't raised like that. There was always someone to blame. Always an excuse for everything. And, and in my wife's world, there's no excuses for anything. Don't blame. It's not worth it. What are you, what are you blaming? So, so you felt good for a second? What is that going to do for you? And so imagine that. Just stopping to blame. It takes practice. It takes a lot of... A lot of it's very hard. It's very hard. Any other thoughts? You mentioned um, something early on about uh, unique value, Jew Jewish values that Jews gave to the world. You mean uh, the seven-day calendar? Um, I didn't think. I didn't think it then when my mother used to tell me. Um, to be mindful uh, of bread. I didn't think about it then, but now I do. And I think that's, it, it's, a, it's a value that Jews don't, that we don't throw bread. We don't, and, and it's, it's so important. It's such an important value that we, um, we gave the world, I feel. That whole look, at, look at what's going on in the, in the disposable generation. All yeah. of a sudden, there's a reverse. Yeah. There's a complete reverse. Yeah. From the disposable generation to nothing disposable. Yeah. It's yeah. amazing. Where our parents have been saying, don't throw that out. 
And we always thought, oh, come on, really? Why are you saying that? Come on. The children in Africa. Oh, yeah, that was the joke, right? Some yeah. kid is starving in Africa. That's why we should, you know, eat your food. Eat your Brussels sprouts. It was powerful. Absolutely. And these are non-negotiables. These are real values. Yeah. One of the most beautiful things about the Passover Seder, and I can't speak about it enough about it, because the Passover Seder is supposed to be an example of what a regular dinner is supposed to look like. <laughs> and one of the things that is amazing is, first of all, is that we always use everything. In, 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 we're supposed to tell our children the story that happened to us when we left Egypt. And it's not a lie. We're supposed to tell our children as if the story happened to us. That is how we tell the narrative because we tell it to them as a value. And that is supposed to be what we're supposed to do. So sit around the dinner table telling our children values. This was part of my inspiration for this whole thing. I realized that you know, how many times do I sit around and just tell my children values? This is our family value. We're going to talk about this one um, in class five. One of my favorite values is, and I say this to my kids all the time, one of, one, one of the most powerful Jewish values is struggle. I'm going to talk about it in class five. And, you know, sometimes my kids say, oh my gosh, I said, and, and, and now they'll smile at me and they'll say, I know what you're going to say. Struggle is our family value. <laughs> Yes, it is. No one said life was going to be easy. Well, the blessing of a skin meat. That's right. No one said life was going to be easy. You're going to struggle. You better love every minute of it. What do they say? Well, it doesn't kill you, it make you stronger. Right. We'll, we'll, we'll have some time to talk about that. I'd love to just go around before we uh, conclude, just to do like a little wrap-up ritual and get just like a one or two or five word uh, reflection from everyone and then we'll close the evening. Who wants to start? And you can pass. You can just say pass if you don't want. I gave You gave yours. <laughs> Eric? Come back. Okay. Dan? <laughs> uh, two things are going through my mind quick. Um, how hard it is to surround oneself with romantic partner or friends who have the same mindset as well. Um, like during this, I was just thinking of a previous relationship and someone where at the end it was like, you speak to something invisible, I don't understand that. But it's, the response was, well, that's your choice too. Like, cool, like I know we're very different. Um, but like friends as well. And the other part, I'm, I'm thinking about like choosing slavery but like choosing cycles in different ways. Like you've probably noticed I wear the exact same thing almost every day minus the sweater uh, because I chose a long time ago that I don't want to make that choice every day. Um, anyway, sorry, that's a bit uh, personal, excuse me, but yeah. But that's important also. Like I also have a very, very, the same dress code every day. And I like that, yeah. I like that. I, don't, I like to make important choices and not make not important choices. Yeah, yeah. I don't consider what I'm wearing an important choice and that's a value of mine yeah. and by the way now like all these CEOs it's like becoming a trend now right yeah, the they all wear day, the same yeah. they're all wearing the same thing every day right I think Steve Jobs started it and now like Zuckerberg <laughs> did it and all these big techie CEOs are starting this thing where they don't care what they wear because they're so interested in innovating and 
working in their brain on things. You know, for a lot of people, it takes up a lot of their brain space, what they're going to wear. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So Bashar being common destination, not common origin. Yeah, thank you. What did you say um, old people feel in their... Rejection. Rejection? Is it, do, you, do you believe that? Yes. I feel like they, they, they look back at their life and they feel like a certain sense of that they could have done better. I think a lot of people feel that way. I, I speak to people, especially being a rabbi, you get to speak to people of vulnerable end-of-life situations. And you hear things. Absolutely. I guess that resonated with you. I thought it would be regret and rejection. Anything? No? Derek? No. Bridget? Dan? Back to you? Nothing? No, it was interesting too because in the news there's, you know, always like the, the CAC, they want to introduce a values test. That's right. Yeah. The Charter of Values. Right. Yeah, it's all about it's just, Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Vote 21, all these values and values. But then, and, and I think that is even more inspiring for us to come up with our set of unique values. And, and it doesn't have to be dogmatic. And I think, I hope, my hope, my prayer and hope tonight is that what I presented to you was not dogmatic in any way and that it also allowed you to create your own unique value from it. That was my goal. And I'm hoping to um, do five more just like this over the next five weeks, just like, you know, of similar values, presenting them in this way and trying to help us all create our non-negotiables and our values. So thank you. Have a good night. Next week, same time, same channel. Hi, Rabbi Bernath here. I have some great news for you. My popular four-week course, Kabbalah for Everyone, is available right now for free for the next 50 people who download it. All you have to do is go to www.theloverabbi.com, scroll to the bottom of the page, and you're going to see the download button right there. In this course, I talk about the Kabbalistic secrets to relationships, to wealth, to happiness, and balance. This special offer has been dedicated in loving memory of Ellie Dorfman. I look forward to hearing from you and hope you enjoy the course. Now on to today's episode.